Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Pro Basketball Talk podcast here at NBC Sports. I am Kurt Heelan, the managing editor of Pro Basketball Talk, here guiding you through some conversations about everything going on around the NBA. And joining me to break down the Chicago Bulls and and just kind of take a look around the Eastern Conference playoffs, Vincent Goodwill from Comcast Sportsnet in Chicago, a, a Look, one of my favorite beat writers for a while now, and now part of the NBC family. Thanks for joining me, man. Oh, thank you for the kind words. I'm sure you say that to everybody. <laughs> no, I actually don't. I, I I was excited to learn you were going to, you know, got this job in Chicago and, and we're going to the Bulls just because that's A, that's a great gig in a, in, a, in, a, in a big market. And you walked right into a playoff team that was clearly going to be one of the number, you know, two or three top teams in the East. And uh, yeah, what happened? Uh, basketball Kardashian happened, which has become my nickname. Uh, <laughs> I start covering franchises, and they wind up going from being stable operations to lottery-bound atrocities. Yeah. Uh, see my six years in Detroit, <laughs> and see my my first full year in Chicago. I think I'm developing the pattern, and whatever franchise you guys want me to destroy next, I will pick up and move, except for Sacramento. Yeah. I. I would fear like what you would do with the Lakers. Like they're already a soap opera. You came here with Kardashians at points. Like you came oh, here. Right. With... I, can't, I can't. I can't mess up teams that are already bad. <laughs> um, yeah. So did Stan Van Gundy just like pay you under the table to leave town? Is that what happened? You know, I, I think once Stan realized what was happening this year, as his team was getting better, and the team that I was covering was getting worse, I'm sure he was in no rush to welcome me back <laughs> to Detroit. He used to he used to give me like a half-man hug, you know, when he <laughs> yeah. saw me. And then it turned into a wave. Like, <laughs> like you, you've got the bubonic plague, get away from me type of thing. So, um, yeah. but yeah, it, it, it's been an interesting experience uh, covering the Bulls, a team that everybody thought was going to be one of those, you know, landmark playoff teams at least in it every year, no matter what was going on with the coaches, no matter what was going on with the players. And this year, everything just seemed to sort of fall apart at basically uh, every every level, Kurt. Honestly, every level has to take uh, a varying degree of responsibility for this failure, and I don't think there's any other way to put it. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are injuries and things that were going to impact this team regardless, but as the season went on and I watched them, this just was not a, a mentally tough, mentally strong team that could fight through that kind of stuff. No, they they seem to succumb at every bit of adversity. You know, whether it was a team making a run on them, you know, the third quarter, they, they the Bulls were curved next to Oklahoma City in their, in their uh, fourth quarter struggles have been well documented. And next to the Philadelphia 76ers, and we all know why, <laughs> Chicago Bulls were the worst team as far as giving up fourth quarter leads. And that can point to a lot of things. That that can point to a team not being mentally tough, a team not being uh, particularly united with each other. And it also points to the sidelines, too, with uh, a novice head coach and Fred Hoiberg, similar to a novice head coach in Oklahoma City and Billy Donovan, they both making the tra- 
transition from college to the pros. And I think with Fred, you know, and I guess if you want to start there, we can start there. You know, you wonder if he underestimated what, how difficult a job this was going to be. And, of course, the injuries played a part. He didn't have a full roster all year. But, unfortunately, for Bulls fans, they've seen non-full rosters for the past three years, and they've seen the Bulls be able to rebound and at least qualify for the playoffs. So people can't necessarily say, well, the, the injuries are the reason we didn't make it this year because that excuse was never used in the past. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple things there, though. One of this is, this was one of those, it's not as bad as, you know, my go-to example in the situation of the Lakers hiring Mike D'Antoni a few years ago, but this was a situation where the coach wants to play and install a specific style of play, and he does not have a roster suited to that style of play. He, the, you know, Pau Gasol and Dokim Noah don't really, I mean, as good a passers as they are, I don't know that they really fit what Hoiberg wants. He doesn't really have the shooting. They're just this wasn't a roster suited to do what he wanted to do, and I don't know that he knew how to adapt well. You know that's the overlooked thing about all of this. Everybody wanted to focus on um, the other parts of the Fred Hoiberg experience, how he messed with Jimmy Butler and Derrick Rose, and how he handled the benching of Joe Kim Noah, and what he represented as far as bringing him in to replace Tom Thibodeau. But when you get down to the basic basketball strategy of it, he did not inherit a roster that was conducive to his style of play. Now, there's many schools of thought. Some people say, okay, you know what? You have to install your system no matter what for the players who will be here in the future just so they can have a head start. They'll be able to rely on muscle memory in the years coming for the future, for the incoming players, to where the players who don't fit the, the system, they don't really matter. You know, they can just go in and bear it for a season, and you want to install your system come hell or high water, which is one school of thought. I don't necessarily, necessarily subscribe to that theory, but it's a school of thought, right? The right. other school of thought is that, hey, this is the roster that I'm inheriting, and we're still under the delusion or under the narrative that we're supposed to be making a run in the Eastern Conference. And if that's the case, you have to tailor your system to your roster to get the most out of it. The only players who, quite honestly, fit Fred Hoiberg's system were Doug McDermott and, to a lesser degree, Nikola Mirotic. Jimmy Butler doesn't really fit the system. Derrick Rose doesn't really fit the system. You're talking about isolation players who don't necessarily like running around screens and moving without the ball and cutting and everything else to that degree. You know, but your most productive players thrive playing a certain way, and maybe it was a little bit unrealistic to expect that those guys would have a smooth and seamless transition. And once again, I point to maybe it was an, it was an underestimation of how much those guys would struggle in the system. I mean, you could see it early in the season, Kirk, you know, and I know, you know, the first couple weeks of the season, the first month of the season, I don't really pay much attention to, to be honest, because I think a lot of that with, with pre-existing teams is muscle memory, yeah. is continuity. You're going to win a lot of games early in the season based off of continuity because you're used to playing together and other teams aren't. But they were winning games almost in spite of their offense. They were winning games because of their of their defense, the defense that was, you know, put in, installed, and reinforced by yeah. by Tibbs. And once they grasped the offense a little bit better, they they became a more efficient offensive team. And part of that, to which Hoiberg deserves some credit for, you know, tweaking the offense a little bit. But it when it shifted, they they basically the defense slipped the whole lot. The yeah. offense didn't fully take hold, and they had no foundation to really rely on. So that's why it became quite obvious, basically from the point of maybe mid-December, if you can ask some of my colleagues, I said, in the Bulls, like five or six games over 500, I said the Bulls will make the playoffs. And I, it just turned out to be, a, a, I guess you would call it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, they, they, yeah, the fall was pretty hard to watch. And obviously now you're at the point where you go into summer needing to make changes. I think we can agree Pau Gasol is, is gone. Uh, wherever he lands, yeah. he lands, but he's he's not coming back. 
do they need to bring Noah back? Um, or does that create, and that starts to get into like the locker room stuff, but do you need to bring Noah back? That's a great question because, you know, Joe Noah is a player, a man of principle, you know, and he's a strong personality. And with the way his benching was handled, yeah. and the way he didn't back up Fred Hoiberg's story, like if he wanted to, he could have backed up Hoiberg's story or saying, yeah, I came to the coach and I said this, I said that, and you know, I volunteered. You know, yeah. Hoiberg created that, that story to try to protect Noah or to try to protect his pride. And Noah's thinking was, look, nobody needs to protect me and secondly, I've been around here so long that that is so out of character. That's not the way that I operate. That, that's not the way that I conduct myself. Look, if you're going to take, bring me to the bench, you're going to bring me to the bench regardless. And, but you should take responsibility for that. You should take the onus for that. And I'm not, I'm not sure because Noah rehabbed after his, uh, after his shoulder surgery. He rehabbed, did a lot of rehab. In New York, he was away from the team for various chunks of time, so it doesn't necessarily lead to those two parties having uh, man-to-man, clear-the-air conversations. And I'm not sure if they have. Maybe maybe they will. Maybe they'll need to uh, if the possibility is there. You know, but And I would say you can't close the door on, on a possible return just because you're going to have a lot of talent walking out the door over the next two years. And there, and there's a lot of respect that people have for Joe Kim Noah in that locker room. Now, is it the smartest move for him to bring him back? I'm not completely sure, but I do think that they will explore it because I'm not sure exactly what their plan is in free agency. I, I, I don't know what the plan is with the cap space that they have, some of the holes that they have in the roster. You know, maybe they consider bringing back Joe Kim Noah at a at a short short deal, low cost uh, uh, proposition. They consider that. You know, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. Maybe so. I, I, I can see him coming back, but yeah, you'd have to work that out. But then that kind of gets into, wasn't, is the divide, I mean, there was obviously locker room chemistry issues. This is starting to evolve towards being, in theory, Jimmy Butler's team. He's now the high-paid, max, you know, youngest max guy. Uh, but is it old school versus new school? Is it Noah and Rose kind of on one side and and Butler on the other, or is, I imagine it's a little more complex than that, but it, are, is that how it's breaking out? It's a lot more complex than that, but a lot simpler to explain. Okay. okay. So this, this makes it easy for me because okay. I, 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 I spent a lot of time thinking about this, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. And here's my theory. And it's something, I, I guess it's something we can all relate to, Kirby. You, you're, a little, you're a little past these days, but I'm sure you can go back in your memory bank. <laughs> Remember Not when you were in high school yeah. and you had a group of friends and no matter, even if you guys were all in the same relative age group, if you all graduated the same year, whatever you want to call it, there was always the little brother of the group, right? right. There was always someone who you guys sort of always brought along as far as maybe maturity, maybe age, whatever, you, whatever attribute, you know, had them being a little bit younger than the rest of the guys. And you can graduate high school, you can go your separate ways, no matter where you go. And let's say you meet, you meet up again 10 years later, and that little brother could be Fortune 500 billionaire. When he meets up with you guys, what is he? He's still the little brother, man. Little brother. Yeah. He'll always be the little brother, right? Because that's what the first impression is. Even if he becomes big brother, he'll always be little brother. He'll always resort to being that in, that in that old role. The problem here is, I'm going to say problem, the situation here in Chicago is Jimmy Butler came in as a late first-round pick that nobody knew and nobody expected anything of. He was the little brother. Kid from Texas, went to Marquette, you know the story, da-da-da. All of a sudden, little brother has become big brother. He's evolved, he's matured, he's turned into the max player in that locker room. And... For a lot of players, I think it was a hard adjustment from little brother becoming big brother in the locker room. It's not like a willful resistance, not a uh, not a resentment or anything like that, but it's just an adjustment from the first impression from what you thought this guy was. And for Jimmy Butler, he's like, look, I've worked my behind off to turn into what I am. 
and you guys should respect that. And my voice now means more. So basically, you have a bunch of players in a new role, and you have a player in Jimmy Butler who's also in a new role because his voice has never meant so much. It has never carried as much weight as it did this year. He's never been a best player on his own team before. He's never had to deal with being the man, you know, on either on the scouting report or any other metric, however you evaluate it. He's never been that guy before. So now he's that guy. He's adjusting to being that guy. You in the locker room are adjusting to little brother being big brother, that guy. So there's a little clash, a little uneasiness because it's adjustment here for everybody. Does that make any type of sense? No, that actually makes that makes actually perfect sense. I can totally see that happening. But then that leads to the question: like that, if this is if you're going to evolve this, if the goal is to evolve this to Jimmy Butler's team, then Rose has to go. No, I don't. I don't necessarily think that because Derek, despite him holding the stand, the standard that he has, you know, whether it's emotional, whether it's you know by accomplishments or whatever. Derek is not a strong personality in the locker room. He was never that vocal guy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like Joe Kim Noah was always the vocal guy, which sort of creates what you may want to say. I want to even say a divide because it's not a divide. Honestly, it seemed like it was 12 guys going in 12 different directions this year. It wasn't yeah. clicks or anything like that, at least from my perspective. I don't think it was necessarily clicks, although some guys were closer with closer with some than others, but I never thought it was it was clickish. I just thought it was 12 guys literally going like 12 ships in a night, and they were all going in different directions, some further than others, but going in different directions. So if, if for Jimmy Butler's ascension in the locker room to become complete, I don't think Rose has to be deleted from, uh, from the equation for that to happen. I, I think there's just, I think those two have a better relationship than people give them credit for, I think, because they don't have this on-floor chemistry because their games don't match. I think people extrapolate on that and make it seem like the two hate each other when nothing could be further from the truth. But you have two different personalities, two sort of similar games that don't necessarily mesh. So maybe from the standpoint of if you want to find the perfect compliment for Jimmy Butler if he's the franchise player, maybe that's the argument. Yeah. or moving Derrick Rose. But with Derrick Rose's contract year coming up and everything else, you're going to get the best Derrick Rose that you've had since the 2012 season. And I don't know if people are just ready to trade him for pennies on the dollar just because. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is th- that contract is still pretty healthy for what you get from Derrick Rose. Now, even even the post-All-Star game kind of best of Derrick Rose, uh, where he was shooting 46% and putting up you know 17 a game, that's a lot of money you're bringing in. So I, he's not going to be, as you told me off, off, you know, off this podcast, it's not easy to move him. He's probably staying. The, the question becomes, do you resign him? And then that always comes back to, like, price. Yeah, that, that's, that's more of a discussion, in my opinion. If, if you want to move him, I think you're moving him, you're moving him to prevent the uh, circus next season. Yeah. You know, you're you're moving him to prevent the trade deadline issues. The if this Derrick Rose's last game and in this scenario with this team and all this other type of stuff. That's the reason you're that's the reason you're moving him. It's not necessarily for the the famous term basketball reasons. It's for a lot of the uh, ancillary reasons that have everything to do with the noise and everything yeah. else. And and I think that if you paid the bill on these injuries. Theoretically, for the past three to four years, why trade him to another team for pennies on a dollar when you're going to get the best of Derrick Rose because, you know, the motivating factor being his contract will be up. And, yeah, of course, it does come down to price. The cap is rising. Um, but I don't think – I'm not sure if anybody's going to offer Derrick Rose a $20 million deal, you know, just because he was the MVP in 2011 or even because of what he may do – you know, next season, mm-hmm. unless he reverts all the way back to that form. And, and I wonder, and, and, you know, I, I wonder, Kurt, if money isn't necessarily going to be the, the prevailing factor for Derrick Rose. He could just be ready to move on from Chicago and these experiences and some of the negative things that have been said, written about him, hinting on about him and everything else. Maybe there is a better place for him, but at least I think he's looking to put himself in a position where if he has a good enough year, all options will be open. 
So, so what is the path to improving this team? Is that frankly the better question is for both sides? I don't know that there's a short term one. I don't know that you get dramatically better next year. That the path might be multiple years. Well, it. I mean, I I caution people who say, "Well, let's just get in the lottery. Let's just tank it out one year, get a high draft pick, and then we'll be back." It doesn't work like that. No. When you're in the lottery, you wind up staying in the lottery. And when you have a max player in his prime, I don't think there's any reason why you shouldn't be going for it. You know, if you look at if you look up and down the list of, of what we consider max guys or whatever you want to say, that I think it, it's you know the John Walls and the Jimmy Butlers. Don't say you owe it to them, but you owe it to the contract that you signed them to to go for it. You know, if you have a good enough player who's a, a number one A or two A guy or something like that, then I believe it's a much easier, it's a much more difficult task for a front office to say, you know what, you know, we have to be creative and we have to find guys here and there who can fit around this team. They still have enough, in my opinion, to where a couple of solid moves with veteran players who can play, tough veteran guys who can play, you make two, you make two moves of rotation players, and I think you are back in being back to being in a good spot. Now it's finding those rotation players. Usually you find those guys in the trade market more than free agency, but those guys are out there. You know, I look at what Detroit did with Marcus Morris, yeah. where, where basically they got him for nothing from Phoenix. And and then shortly thereafter, well, a few months later, Marquise Morris went to Washington. Now, he didn't have the same effect, but he was still productive, and they still have someone who's on a value contract because it was signed before the cap you know, went up to you know the astronomical numbers. There's value contracts out there. There's value players on bad teams who want to get out, and what you have to have is creativity in the front office and a strong enough culture that you can absorb a guy who may be, who may, I won't say maybe a little bit of a problem, but you know, who may have worn out his welcome somewhere else, but who could be eager for a fresh start. Now, if you just want to say, hey, we'll ride out Nikola Mirotic and Doug McDermott and all these guys and hope that they make these big giant leaps because we know them, you will find yourself again in the lottery next year because you played it safe. Yeah, I, no, I don't think that they need to go all out tanking. I just think that it, no, no. it's going to take it's it. The market this year is there's guys out there, but it is a thinner market. There's a better market in 2017, and so I think it just takes a couple of years to to evolve this team, like we said at the start there, to get what you know to get to a roster that can play what Fred Hoiberg really wants to do, even if it's not pure. I think you can have on a team like that. You can still have one guy who's a little isolation heavy and a little ball dominant, um, so long as he's willing to move it occasionally. Is you know you can have one yeah, Jimmy Butler. But, if you've got three, then you're in trouble. Uh, see, my thing about systems and everything else is this, and I, I just make it very simplistic. A guy that embraces a system, you know, an offensive system, nine times out of ten, is a guy that can't get his own shot. Yeah. You know, of course. If I can't get my own, it's going to be real easy for me to embrace any type of system because the system is going to create the offense for me. The system is going to allow me to score and to thrive. If I can get my own shot off the dribble, off the shot, no matter how much time I use, now granted I'm not talking James Harden time, but you know, just in general, if I can get my own shot, I'm going to be less apt to embrace a heavy ball movement system. So, and, and, you can, and guys can't change their skill sets either. You know what I'm saying? Like, every player is not, you know, as prolific off the ball as Clay Thompson and Stephen Curry are. You know, mm-hmm. that's just not, the, the, although the system enhances what they can do, their skill sets are their skill sets. So, Jimmy Butler is a backdoor alley-oop guy, but not a, you know, not a, not a V-cut guy right right down the middle off of a, you know, off a flex cut or something like that. That's yeah. just not who he is. Okay, fine, he's probably not going to be that guy. But it's up to the coach and the players to actually find some middle ground between doing something you're not completely comfortable doing but not abandoning and wrecking the, the rhythm of an offense or at least what should be the rhythm of an offense. That, that's got to be a meeting of the mind between both sides. Yeah. Uh, well, let's just talk about the Bulls' next future star, Cristiano Felicio. Is, do they have something there? I, you know what? I think they do. 
probably think that I am crazy because they are crazy and they think that I'm the most negative Nancy on the history <laughs> in the history of this earth and everything. Well, else. you are. I mean, let's um, just but, be fair. Yeah, I, I probably am. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm from Detroit. I was born. I was born to hate Chicago. So of course, what what do I do? I infiltrate Chicago and. I wind up doing all this. It's like a perfect, brilliant Dr. Evil plan. Like, seriously. <laughs> if, if there was a script, uh, I could infiltrate and destroy the bulls from the inside, right? No. But um, but Chris Felicio, out of all the bulls that they have drafted or brought in or invested in in the past two years, so that's Bobby Portis and Tony Snell, Nikola Miritich, and Doug McDermott, he's the guy that I would have the most faith and confidence in, if that makes sense. As yeah. far as being a productive performer. He moves his feet exceptionally well, Kurt. He has a really good hand. He finishes at the rim. He can explode at the rim. He's a really good rebounder. He's, he's sort of getting consistency with a 18-foot jump shot uh, off the wing that teams will play off of. And he's pretty adept defensively. He doesn't communicate as well because he's not used to it because he's sort of a quiet guy. And I think that's something that can develop. You know, with Nico and Doug, those guys are, are higher ceiling guys. You know, they can give you a 30-point night, but they can also play Casper the Friendly Ghost the next night, too, where mm-hmm. so many nights where you go out there and you don't know that either one is on the floor. And with that type of variance, especially on a team that's dependent dependent so much on young players, I don't know if you can have too many of those type of guys. You, you mentioned saying, you know, three isolation-heavy guys, and I, I, I flip it back and say, I don't know how many, you know, high – you know, high-risk, low-reward, or, you know, high-risk, high-reward guys you can have on a young roster yeah. that still wants to compete substantially because you don't know what you can get on a night-to-night basis. Yeah, uh, that I agree. Yeah, that I agree with. I think, yeah, you look, I'm not a big fan of, of isolation-heavy guys, and, and, again, you can have one or so, but it doesn't, you know. Look, even Kobe at the end, is, even, even Kobe at the end is moving the ball within the triangle You know, back in the day. I mean, he, you know, he's still taking... Sh- He'll still decide to take the shot over three guys, but you've got to you've got to pick your spots with it. Jordan would move it occasionally, so you've still got to pick your spots. Right, right. Um, no, I think I think to a certain degree that comes down to a certain confidence. Do you have confidence in your teammates? Do you have confidence yeah. in in the system that if I make the right play here, will it lead to will it lead to a score, or do or do I only trust me? Yeah. And I know what's best. And even if I don't quote unquote move the ball, but somebody else gets a good shot. Is that just for the greater good? And I think that's a question all parties basically have to ask themselves uh, this offseason because of the way things went, uh, it didn't go to anybody's liking, so there's had to be a lot of self-reflection on everybody. Yeah, very true. Let's uh, Since you you know, you know cover the East, you're from Detroit, you've been covering the Eastern Conference for a while, let's bounce around the Eastern Conference playoffs for a few minutes and talk about what's going on out there and, and, and uh, some, of the, some of the playoff series. We'll start with your, um, your native Detroit. Uh, that, that was they, look. That was an impressive game one from them. I, 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 that was better than I thought they'd probably do in game one. I don't know that they're winning this series, but you had to like how they played. But did they wake up Chicago? I mean Chicago. Did they wake up Cleveland in game one, or was, or, or is this going to be a tighter series than we expect? <laughs> no, they woke up Cleveland <laughs> in game one. I think I, I, I'm a firm believer in. When you're a role team, when you're a team that, that is that young, that novice of playoffs, experienced team, and you come out and you play better in game one or play better through 30. If you play good through 24 minutes, okay, fine. You know, you can take that. But once you start the we're playing well into the 40th minute thing, stealing a game becomes more imperative than, you know, opponents. Like some people are, are saying – well, Detroit played well, and it's a pat on the back, and they're thinking, okay, maybe they'll, they'll steal a game. But they won't catch Cleveland slipping again. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, they, they've, they've woken up those antennas, and now Cleveland's going to be on high alert for game two. And if they won game one, if and Stan Van Gundy was pretty, you know, was frank about, you know, the coaching mistakes that he made in game one, and I think they were massive coaching mistakes if you want to steal a game and extend and stretch this to probably a six-game series. You know, I think if he left Stanley Johnson in there, if you if you don't bring back Tobias Harris, who really struggled, yeah. maybe you steal game one. 
on the road, if you can calm Reggie Jackson down, if you can find a way to, to keep Andre Drummond on the floor but keep him away from, from Kevin Love, you know, that type of thing, you know, perhaps if you steal game one, if nothing else, you give Cleveland a little bit of doubt. And yeah. if nothing else, you create a raucous atmosphere going back to Detroit for, for games three and four. Well, you may, well, you are likely, I think, if they stole game one, they're probably likely to come out of that with a 2-2 series. And they won't win the series anyway, but getting two games from a team that's likely going to the finals both well for your future in a huge, huge way. Not just in the series, who knows how it's going to play out, and, some, and, and you know, I'm not, uh, you know, who knows exactly how the next two or three games will play out, but I think game one was a great experience and a great teacher, but I think it could have been a, a greater springboard um, had they closed it out. Yeah. It, it... Cleveland also may have found something. I, they didn't do this a lot during the regular season, and I like the Kevin Love at the five, LeBron at the four. LeBron hates playing the four for whatever his reasoning is, but they're better when he's at the four, whether whoever whether you're putting Tristan at the five or Kevin Love at the five. Um, that worked for them, and it you know like you said, that got Andre Drummond off the floor. It, it didn't work well for him at all. Stan's got to come up with some kind of counter for that. Yes, he does, and and. I think it, I'm not sure if it was Jeff Van Gundy who said it or uh, Mark Jackson who said it during the game. Maybe you put Drummond on Amon Shumpert, yeah, and just have him roam and have him roam the perimeter. Now Shumpert can hit shots, and if you lose Shumpert on the perimeter, he can you know he can beat you. But if the Cleveland Cavaliers start planning to run plays for Amon Shumpert, you win anyway because the play that means. Plays aren't getting run through with Brian James, Kevin Love, yeah. or you know, or Kyrie Irving. So you can just live with that. They have so many weapons. You're going to have to give up something. And you're right about LeBron at the four, especially when you run the one-four pick and roll with LeBron. You know, at the elbow of LeBron, cutting to the rim. I mean, that's yeah. basically when he's at his best, where he can either take blame or he can play the sort of pseudo Draymond Green role yeah. off of a trapped pick and roll and pick a team apart, driving through the middle of the floor like he's the best passer in the game, and I don't think people uh, should ever forget that in these type of situations. So for for Van Gundy, he's got to find a way to keep Drummond on the floor, especially if Drummond is, is rolling, having a good game, dominating the glass, scoring inside. You can't let the Cavs dictate uh, you taking your most impactful player off the floor. And if Cleveland has found something with Love at the five, LeBron at the four, then they're going to keep rolling with that during crucial stretches, and you got to give Ty Lue a lot of credit for that because yeah. – that was his first playoff game as a head coach. And we know what David Blatt, the type of mistakes that he made all through the postseason, starting with the season, the series against the Bulls, and sort of, you know, some of the, the tactical issues that he had in the finals, albeit he didn't have, uh, he didn't have a full complement of uh, players, but he made his share of uh, game plan mistakes too for Ty Lue to come out against an experienced and really good coach like Stan Van Gundy and come out tactically on top, that bodes well for them going down the line if they can make they can make the right moves uh, uh, in the middle of the game. Exactly. Uh, and, if by the way, if I'm Stan Van Gundy, the one other thing you've got to do, if they're going to put Kevin Love at the five and go light on rim protection, drag him into a pick and roll every time down because he can't defend it. Like, you've just, you've got to make them pay seriously for having him as the five, and they didn't really get to do that last game. We'll see if no, they didn't, and, and that a lot of times you wonder, you know, Reggie Jackson, because they've depended so heavily on Reggie Jackson in four yeah. quarters that they just let him rock. And a lot of times it's not even uh, high screen rolls or anything like that, but they just they just let him rock, and a lot of times he's delivered. Now, in game one, he didn't. You know, he didn't always make the right decision. Sometimes he dribbled the ball into the ground and against the set defense and everybody else watched. And now you wonder, do you put Mark, Marcus Morris and more high screen rolls. You know, you just leave you leave Drummond out there, you create a switch and then you find Kevin Love in a high screen role. Or even even if it's Drummond. Okay, yeah. you know what? You're gonna you're gonna put Kevin Love on Drummond. We're gonna run him ragged with screen roll and hope that we get some type of mismatch at the rim to where you don't have a rim protector not named LeBron coming on the blind side. Yeah. So there's a lot of options that Detroit has with the personnel that they have. It's just a matter of what are you giving up on the other end of the floor that you have to feel comfortable with up. Yeah. Anybody in the East beating Cleveland? Miami. You really think they've got a shot? 
I think they've got a great shot. Honestly, I really do. Even without Chris Bosh. Uh, I think the one thing about Miami that, that we know is that there's something mental that happens when LeBron plays Dwayne Wade and he plays the Miami Heat. And there's a sort of advantage that they feel like that they have over over him and over that team. Like, there's something there. Like, Eric Spolster does not get the credit he deserves for being a really good oh, coach. Oh, he's a fantastic coach. He gets, I think too many people thought he just rolled the ball out there for a few years. He is a great coach. Yeah, he is. And, and the way that they seamlessly adjusted from, okay, we're going to bring Whitehead off the bench because we have Chris Bosh, and then now we got Joe Johnson and yeah. no Bosh. And Whiteside is becoming more consistent, and I still have to figure out a way to maximize two ISO heavy, three ISO heavy players in my starting five: Joe yeah. Johnson, Juan Dragic, Dwayne Wade. I have to find a way to keep the ball moving, even though those guys are, are three guys I like to rock. I think he's done an excellent job, and not only that, they have enough muscle memory that they can pull back on. Even though these are this is a totally different team than the, than the team that went to the finals three years ago, two years ago. Um, they still have enough muscle memory that I think when you come down to the to fourth quarters, you got two guys, at least two guys that can close games yeah. and get to the line and make their free throws, and you have a rim protector in Whiteside. I think if they wind up seeing the Heat, look, Kurt, you might be preparing for a, a, a few days in South Beach instead of uh, on Lake Erie, and I'm sure you won't be too disappointed. No, I was going to say, if, if I was about to say, like, the media doesn't root really. We honestly, and like in terms of players and stuff, there's players we like. Whatever. I don't really care who wins. All I'm rooting for is convenience and travel destinations. <laughs> like, like I live in LA. Do I want San Francisco? You know, do I want Golden State to make this so that I'm in the Bay Area? Yeah, because it's a, like an hour flight. I could go home if there's a three day break. You know, like, right, right. <laughs> like yeah, I want them to go. Plus, that's a fantastic city, fantastic. Game. If it's no offense to Cleveland, which I. Everybody's a little more down on than I am. I, as a working city, it's functional because you stay in the hotel. You can walk to the arena. Everything's right there. There's some good restaurants right in downtown. But it ain't Miami. Like, it's, <laughs> not, not, it's not close to Miami, man. So Nothing's nothing's in Miami. No. Like, you, can bring your wife to, you can bring your wife to Cleveland. Honey, we can go on the trip. Never, you say I always leave for, for days at a time. Come to Cleveland, Miami. Honey, I'll be back in a few days. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, you're not going to be able to make that one. Miami manhandled Charlotte in that first game, but I fully expect, look, that's a good, well-coached Charlotte team. They're going to make this a tougher series before it's over. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, when, look, they have sort of, they have dangerous qualities. Yeah. You know, Kimball Walker has the potential to be explosive. Uh, Nicholas Batum, I, who I think will be a great fit, uh, in Chicago, if you know when he gets the he's going to get I'm paid sure. this summer. People, people don't realize Batum is going to make a lot of money this summer. And I'll tell you, a sleepy team that might go after him, San Antonio. I can. Oh, I can definitely the, the French, the French, the French connection. Yep, <laughs> and he'd blend in he perfectly. Be a more consistent uh, wingman than Danny Green is to Kawhi Leonard. Yep. So no, I, I, I firmly, I firmly rock with that and. And, and getting back to Charlotte, they, you know, Kim Walker struggled a bit. You still have Al Jefferson, who who is very dependable on the block, and Steve Clifford. You know, he he can he can coach. You know, I'm not ready to put him in the the top five coaches argument quite yet, but I think he's knocking on the door, and I think he's you know he's done a good job with this roster that they've been given, and you know he's maximized Jeremy Lamb and Jeff Lynn and a lot of these other guys who who you weren't sure how they fit in the construct of a good NBA team, and he wound up utilizing them and finding good roles for these guys, and, and along with Kimball Walker, who many people thought couldn't play point guard at this level. It turns out he can. And, you know, now it's just a matter of, okay, can I take advantage of Goran Dragic defensively, and can I slow down Dwayne Wade and Joe Johnson enough defensively? They were just overwhelmed in game one. I don't, I don't expect that a team that good defensively will be overwhelmed two games in a row considering the, the, the numbers that they put yeah. up and the way that they often overwhelmed and smothered teams uh, defensively through the year. Yeah, I agree. I think that's, I still think Miami comes out on top, but I think that series gets closer. The, the series that's been the most interesting so far is uh, the Pacers and Raptors. Um, 1-1 going back to uh, the Fieldhouse in Indiana for Game 3. Um, 
I mean, Toronto, you start talking about the mental aspects of the game and just the, the history and them not... But, I mean, the last again, the last time they got out of the first round as a franchise, they had Vince Carter. They were still wearing those purple dinosaur uniforms. It's, it's been a while. Um, I thought that they'd get through this series, but they struggled with Paul George, and they've had to lean on Valanchunas. I think this is going to be a 2-2 series when they're done in in uh, Indiana. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be one of those situations where they steal a game. Yeah. And maybe, and I can't believe I'm going to say this because he's been, he, he has not played well, but I think Kyle Lowry has to have a game. Yeah. Right? He At some point, he has to. Before, he, you know, before this, round, I would say before this playoff series is over, but you know, he didn't really have a game last year in the postseason. So, you know, he I think he's shooting like 27% from the field or something like that. Like, that yeah. is completely unacceptable, right? You know, he, he says, well, you know, I'm not, my confidence isn't shaking or anything like that, but look, the guy shot like 33% from the field last year against Washington when John Wall ran him around circles. There's no John Wall here. No. He's playing against George Hill and Rodney Stuckey and Ty Lawson. You know what I'm saying? Like, you should not be having these type of issues if you want us as media and everybody else to respect you as a top-tier point guard, you can't keep struggling in the postseason like this, especially at the point guard spot. So I think the Rosen sort of is what he is. I, I do, and Valanciunas is a monster, and he's going to steal them the game just from being a monster on the glass. Yeah. But there's something funky about Toronto that mentally I just can't get with, and I wonder if it all starts with Kyle Lowry. Yeah, and the other thing is that there's, he's not himself. They missed Damari Carroll. They need... They need that. They need the old Damari Carroll, and he's not. He's he's out there playing. He's doing what he can, but he is not that guy again. And so they don't. That takes away that perimeter stopper. It takes away just the energy guy, the hustle guy who makes all those little diving, you know, diving on the floor type of plays that they need right now. It puts more on DeRozan. Yep. It puts more on Terrence Ross. Who's... And DeRozan already has to carry the load. You know, a lot of the load offensively, especially with Lowry struggling, and he already has Paul George on him, hounding him for the most part. So it, it puts him in a, a position that maybe he's not even equipped for, to be perfectly honest, because he has to work so hard to get his point. And then on top of that, you're going to say, hey, chase around Paul George for 40 minutes. That could be too much to ask. And Terrence Ross, and he's certainly talented, you know, but one of the reasons that one of the reasons that they acquired a guy like Damari Joe was because they didn't feel like they were getting the consistency at that, at that three spot. Uh, from Terrence, and now you're yeah. putting him in a spot where you're forcing him to be exactly what he's never been through his short NBA career, and it, it just seems like Carroll's, you know, the intangibles that Carroll brings, he usually brings, uh, they're, they're missing and it's being more magnified because Lowry is struggling because Damari, uh, or not Damari Carroll, but um, because Damari DeRozan is having to carry more responsibility, you know, and, yeah. and let's be honest, let's give the Pacers a lot of credit here. Yeah. Paul George, Paul George is real. He's yeah. very real. And I was really concerned about his play because he always starts seasons off well and then tapers off. And he sort of found his game as the postseason has started. So if he has a, a 35, 36-point game in him, you know, I wouldn't be shocked to see the Pacers up, you know, 3-1 because, you know, the role players, the Miles Turner, the Jordan Hills, the Ronnie Stubbies, those guys are going to play a lot better at home. If he gives them the game two as well, I wouldn't be shocked if this wound up being a three-one Pacers thing going back to going back up to the north uh, for game five. But I but I would bet on it being two-two. Yeah, I, I, I expect two-two as well. But you're right. They, they, this is a pretty even series, and it's it's going to be yeah. Kyle Lowry's had the elbow issue. He's got to get through that. Like you said, I think that that's ultimately the key. Their guards, he and DeRozan, if they're going to win one on the road, it's because those guys are going to have a monster night against a, a lesser backcourt. And and we haven't seen that from them. I thought, the I, I'll tell you that going, you know, middle of the season, I thought the Raptors were the team that could be the second best team in the East. But if they don't have Carroll, they're, they will get destroyed by, if they don't have the old Carroll, they stand no chance. And the old backcourt against teams like Cleveland, so let alone... I never bought into, I never bought into Toronto. Really? Just because I, I've never seen this group do it before. Like, yeah. you got to get out the first... Like, I, it's very rare, and I, and I would have to go back and look, but I can't think of a team that went from not getting out of the first round 
to all of a sudden going to the finals or getting to the conference finals. Not saying you have to take the the super incremental baby steps, but you have to take a step before you know getting to the conference finals. And they haven't done that. And I'm starting to wonder if there's something mental with this group, and that if they need to, if this doesn't happen, then you really have to start wondering about the you know what type of mix of players that you have. Exactly. Um, and finally, the last series. That Avery Bradley injury, I think we saw how much that and uh, missing Olenek, but Bradley in particular, really hurt um, really hurt the Celtics in Game 2. They're down 2 nothing to the Hawks and, and in a lot of trouble now. And uh, My one piece of advice to the Celtics would be, you might want to stick with Kyle Korver on the perimeter. You might just not want to give him good looks. Well, the problem is, they, if you look at it, a lot of his mates have come off a of turnover in the semi and those are the hardest plays to track shooters because usually there's going to be some form of cross-switching, especially with the way that whoever struggles on defense as far as moving feet. But if you get in an open floor situation, your natural instinct is to run towards the basket. Corver runs towards the line. Yep. Not only does he run towards the line, he runs towards his spot in the corner, at the top of the key. He just runs towards like a, like a red X on the floor. He runs towards the spot. He stomps his feet and claps his hands, and all of a sudden the ball's there and the ball's going up. And I think that's a, that's just a difficult proposition from the way that basketball players, you know, from the way that, you know, grammar school, high school, however, when you were taught to get back on defense, you were taught to start running hard yeah. back to the center of the floor, except you have this guy who runs to the three-point line. Yeah. And if they, if they don't keep their turnovers down, and Isaiah Thomas has, has to have better games. He, he must have better early starts. Like, the, for whatever reason, the Celtics, and it goes back to the last four or five games of the regular season where I think they were down like 25 to the heat before they came back in that, in that last regular season matchup. And I think it was another couple matches where they've been up to really slow starts. You can't afford, whether home on the road, you can't afford to be down 15 points after the first quarter. No. You're down 15 points no. at any point in the game. So, it, while it, it's an interesting proposition to see them going home, Kurt, I'm not sure if they're going to be able to. Excuse me. I'm not sure if they're going to be able to break that pattern. And yeah, you're missing your best on-ball defender and a guy who had developed into a dependable scorer. And Jay Crowder has disappeared, and Isaiah Thomas is underwhelmed. So who are they depending on? And you don't know if Kelly Olynyk is going to be around for Game Three. So it, it, they have a bunch of question marks. And although I don't think they'll get swept, I think this has potential to be a very disastrous uh, seven-game series, a, a short seven-game series. Uh, against the Atlanta team that seems to be finding its way rapidly. Yeah, and and you know that that Hawks defense isn't going anywhere. Like they're going to make it hard for you every game. They were underrated, I think, by a lot of fans and really solid all season long. Millsap is a better defender than people realize. Horford's a better defender than people realize, and they're they're able to even though they're not they don't have a classic big rim protector. They do a nice job of making it difficult inside, and that allows guys like Teague to be aggressive on the outside. Well, you have to ask me who was part of my uh, defensive player of the year voting shakeout. Uh, who did you, wait, who did you pick for def- I mean, I assume it was Kawhi and Draymond were in there, but who would you have? Kawhi, then Draymond, then Paul Millsap was third. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people had Millsap third. I think I had him fourth. I gave, I, probably because I saw a lot of him and saw the improvement. I'd had, I would have had Dra- DeAndre third, but Millsap, Certainly could have earned that spot. I, that's a he's really, really he's so, versatile. Smart. he's so versatile. Yeah, you know because they play such an aggressive style of defense. You you have, you have to have faith in your threes and your fours to basically do a lot of switching on pick and rolls and a lot of trapping, which means it puts them in situations where they're guarding you know point guards and shooting guards, almost in ISO situations because you know sometimes teams want to get that switch against a four. Yeah, and okay, point guard, you got a four on you. Go ahead and rock. And the problem is Paul Millsap moves his feet really well, and he's really long. He has really long arms. So if you think you're around him, you look up, and next thing you know, the ball is swiped. He almost gets two steals a game. Yep. And even if you get around him or by him, he can meet you at the rim, i.e. Isaiah Thomas. So I think he's one of the most – he's the key to that defense working. I, I, I really, really think so. And he's developing and evolving into a, a much more – uh, productive and well-rounded player that anybody could have given him credit for. He's fantastic. Yeah, everybody thought, he remember coming in, he was like, oh, he's going to be a rebounding specialist and a nice, you know, he can develop into a nice bench role player uh, for a big off the bench. And 
look, he's a multiple-time all-star and, and a, an elite forward defender. So, yeah, I don't think anybody saw that coming. No, no, and, and he's a max player. Never forget yeah. that. Yeah. He's a max guy, and he's living up to it. Yeah, and he's yeah he is earning that. Well, thanks for being on here. Just to recap for anybody who missed this, you know, if you just from the start of the podcast, Vincent Goodwill said that Pau Gasol will be back with the Bulls, given a max contract, and play like an MVP next season. That's a good one. Yeah, that is a <laughs> so probably not that. But uh, I think I'd love to. I, I don't think I know. I want to have you back on uh, once we get into free agency. Maybe I don't. Are you going to be out in Vegas for to sweating summer league? Maybe so. Yeah, hopefully so. I love the uh, Vegas atmosphere and debauchery from some of my uh, media brethren. I uh, just like sitting back and watching everything, uh, you know, watching everything go down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll be there in July. Well, maybe maybe we'll get together and do the podcast then in person, and if not, uh, I'll definitely have you back on because the Bulls are going to be uh, one of the more interesting teams to watch as we head into the off season. Thanks again for doing this. Where can everybody find you on Twitter? Everybody, bring me your hate and your questions <laughs> and your love. You can bring it to Be Goodwill at Be Goodwill on Twitter, and you can also find my work at CSN Chicago. All right, thanks a lot for doing this, and we will be back in the next couple of days to talk more NBA playoffs, a little more focused on the Western Conference, but we're going to go through everything in detail. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.